I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a mouse. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. This is the Beyond the Mouse podcast, the podcast for all things Disney for NPR Illinois Community Voices and for the Front Row Network. I'm your host, Craig, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Mr. Brett Rutherford. Hello there. And Miss Vanessa Ferguson. Hello. I would be lying if I didn't tell you I'm not a little giddy today. Um, I can't believe the gentlemen we are about to speak to, the the people that know Disney and are Disney fans, and particularly fans of the Disney parks. The name Tony Baxter is such a legendary name uh, amongst that company. And we get to speak to him today. In fact, he was named a Disney legend in 2013, but he has been long a Disney legend in our hearts. Brett, your thoughts on our conversation coming up with Tony Baxter? I'm, I'm very excited. I'm so honored to speak with Tony Baxter. There are no words. So I better just be quiet and get on with it because I... I, there are no words. I just can't believe that we get to do this. So, What about you, Vanessa? I am so excited because the Indiana Jones ride in Disneyland had such an effect on me. And Brett can attest, it was the most fun I think I've ever had on a, on a Disney ride. And I get to talk to the guy behind that today. What, what is life? You know, it, it, and I was going to, I don't want to read a, a formal bio of Tony before we go into the interview with him, but just think about Big Thunder Mountain and think about Journey into Imagination, Indiana Jones Adventure, uh, Disneyland Paris as a park. These are all properties and attractions and rides that were brought to you by this man. And he took the lead on so many of those projects. And we are so grateful to get to speak to him today. I know you don't want to hear me anymore. You want to hear Tony. So here we are Tony, with our interview with Tony. Tony, Tony, Tony. <laughs> We are so honored to have joining us on Beyond the Mouse, uh, Disney legend, Tony Baxter. How are you today? I'm great. Terrific weather out here in California. Just got back from a mini vacation in the mountains. So what could be better? (laughs) Well, that just sounds so lovely. And I have our first question for you. Uh, I just mentioned you're a Disney legend and the attractions projects that you've worked on are just so inspiring to us, but I'm sure also to other Imagineers that have followed you. But I wanted to ask in your time as an Imagineer, who was it that inspired you and helped you grow maybe as a mentor in your career? Well, I think mentors are one of the most important things you can have in a career. And if it's a really good mentor, it works both ways so that they're excited and learning a lot from a new generation as you are from that uh, from their perspective and so i'm going to give you two because one was prior to getting into the creative at disney but i was a ride operator and my professor at art school in long beach dr maxine merlino uh, she realized i'd be much more challenged in the uh, theatrical design area if I was designing something that was interesting to me rather than being an opera or something that would be assigned. So she was willing to, first of all, I had to convince her Disney was a legitimate theater, you know, and that a pirate ride was similar to an opera, only it's for today's generation rather than 300 years ago. And uh, 
reluctantly she came out and became very quickly a Disney convert. And, you know, it was from then on, you know, she took more research that first day with her camera. I think she did 12 rolls of film on details from Disneyland. Anyway, so she really encouraged me and I, and realized that I would put far more effort and research and all of that into doing attraction for Disneyland, which was loosely based on Island at the Top of the World, which was merely a tiny picture in the annual report about that big, suggesting that somewhere down the road they would do it. And I said, well, an island at the top of the world, how cool would that be? So I developed that for her and it became a major piece of my portfolio uh, when I presented my artwork at Imagineering. And I know it was more interesting to the company because it was a Disney-based thing and that impressed them that someone, a student or a Disneyland employee would look at a tiny postage stamp picture like that and develop an attraction. So that was the first one. And then as I got into Imagineering, it was definitely Claude Coates. And uh, Claude was the epitome of someone who uh, was learning as much from me as I was from him, because I'd worked on Adventure Through Inner Space at the park as a ride operator, which was his one of his major projects that he uh, was the lead designer on. So um, he was constantly questioning about, you know, what did the people think of it and what were the best parts of it and all that. And I thought that was really amazing. I'm just, you know, a kid that came up from Disneyland who worked on the ride and, and he was enthralled about that. And the other thing about Claude that was very different from a lot of the other Imagineers, which I had opportunities to work with, for most of the, you know, the old school Walt generation Imagineers, you worked for them. So they would give you assignment, they would give you a drawing. And in my case, I was working the model shop. So they would say, you know, go ahead and build a version of this and then let me see it and I'll approve it. And Claude would more likely say, well, why don't you take uh, that thought for the Snow White ride or whatever, back to your desk and come up with a few ideas and then we'll talk them over and see what, uh, what goes. And I remember the very first thing was a spider web that was going to be welded out of uh, uh, brazing rods uh, in front of the witch scene in Snow White. And I, I was so worried about designing that spider web and each little thread, you know, and everything. And, and, I, and I took it and he goes, yeah, that looks really good. Because in the grand scheme of things, you could make 500 different spider webs. And Claude was a big enough person that he'd say, it looks like a good spider web. So that's the spider web we're going with. And I'm not going to nitpick here and say, well, that line should go this way. So it was a great experience and one where um, he challenged me to take initiative. And uh, I think if you, if you get saddled with, I don't think, I wouldn't even call it a mentor. If you're apprenticing to a design leader that wants everything okayed and brought back. And, you know, you, you, you begin to think in limited ways about what you can add to it. And you just start making sure the color is the same as the sketch and the, the size and proportion or, you know, and I think that, that it isn't a waste of your, your energy, but it, it eats up a ton of time measuring to make sure everything is exactly right rather than, well, okay, I'm going to take my time and add something to what, Claude's idea was, and maybe then it'll even be a more interesting thing. And that was what he taught me. And I think I've been able to do that for a lot of younger Imagineers that I've, I've worked with in the time since. I hope I have anyway. <laughs> You'll have to ask them. 
Well, it, and absolutely. And, you know, um, we have a question later on about, uh, and we mentioned Tom K. Morris, and he talked about that mentor role that you played for him. Yeah. So uh, certainly, and as fans, we uh, we certainly enjoy that you passed along that knowledge, because now we are still continually reaping the benefits of all of that. But Vanessa has our next question for you. Sure. Well, you worked at Disneyland when you were a teenager and visited the parks even before that. And so we wanted to ask you, um, can you tell us about that experience? And, and do you have any stories about how that time um, inspired you to become a Disney Imagineer? Oh, yeah, it was just a growing up in Orange County. Um, it was here, you know, so I could ride my bike. And uh, we I was lucky if I got maybe two family funded visits and so uh, the rest of the time would have to be on my own and because there wasn't an annual passport which we all may be getting used to now again I don't know (laughs) uh, you you just didn't go it was like a special event thing and uh and it was not expensive really but uh it was a special thing and something you do only a couple times so it would be like if there was something new or, and Walt was constantly showing us on TV, the Tiki room and all these things that were like carrot bait, you know, to come out. And uh, I think the one that was the transformative one being someone who loved Disneyland all my childhood, but everyone can say that that's just a normal thing. Uh, But so they opened the great moments with Mr. Lincoln and it was kind of neat because it was the second year of the World's Fair, so it was still running in New York. And here was a chance to see one of Walt's four uh, New York shows while it was still in New York, so to speak. So uh, I remember going out in July, I think it opened around July and uh, of 1965. And it was so dignified and so beautiful. And I don't think they, we've ever captured the awe of that building. I mean, walking in the door and the girls had the most beautiful costumes I've ever seen on any Disney hostesses and the, uh, the reverential presentation of the uh, Capitol in the, in the lobby and all these paintings from the White House and Lincoln's stove pot, uh, top hat and a whole lot of real artifacts that were presented by Lincoln Savings. And, and then you had the dignity of this big widescreen film in a pre-show area before going into the theater. And of course that was the first live human being audiometronic. And I just said, okay, I can't afford to come here every week. So I better get a job. You got a main gate pass, you know, with that. So sure enough, in, the, in August I started and uh, that became a five year, you know, experience working at Disneyland starting in, uh, for Carnation, because I was too young to work at Disneyland, which required you to be 18. And I was 17, and they they hired me. And a month later, Disney bought out Carnation, and I became a full-time Disney employee, which my whole all my benefits and everything go back to that month, because <laughs> wow. Disney would have never hired you that way. They would have hired you part-time or seasonal or whatever. And you're, you wouldn't accrue until you became a permit. And so they had to hire all of the Carnation staff at the level they were. So uh, that was very lucky. And uh, I, I think I really, at that point in my career, I, I really just thought maybe I could teach. And on the weekends, I could continue at Disney, but I'd really want to be a ride operator, not scooping ice cream at Carnation. So um, I worked my way into operations. And I think 
Oh, between the Matterhorn and the submarine ride and the, and the in, in inner space, which felt like you were working a Star Trek film, you know, like you were somebody on the Enterprise wandering the corridors and whatnot. And so that I, I was really happy with that. I mean, I didn't really think it was possible maybe to get further than that if you had no connections and everything. Uh, so I was very excited about that. And in terms of it preparing me, uh, I often tell younger people that are trying to figure out what to do in school that working at Disneyland or, the, well, Disney World, in particular, the operational divisions where you're handling guests and, and figuring out how they do and do not move properly in and out of attractions, um, you're learning a lot about the ergonomics, which is not taught at all in any schools that I know of, maybe in the engineering classes, but... I think I learned a lot at Disneyland that just didn't, wouldn't have come from school. And it wasn't a class you could say, and you can take it as credit, but uh, I think anyone preparing, it would be like going to Detroit to design automobiles if you didn't know how to drive, you know? Uh, know. (laughs) There's something you know about what you like in driving a car and what you get aggravated. Why don't they fix this? And why is this the way it is and so forth? Why is that slot between the two front seats impossible to get anything out of? Why do they design every single car that way? You know, so these are the kind of things that there's no class for that, you know? So Disneyland was sort of a, a training ground for that. And I was lucky enough that one of my supervisors saw me showing off my artwork on Island at the Top of the World and Mary Poppins and a couple of other things. He said, well, if you don't mind, I'd be glad to take that up to Imagineering for a meeting and then we'll see what happens. And uh, they didn't hire me on it. They just said, go back and learn how to draw better. But we really see something uh, that we we like in this. And, and so I, when I finished school, I went back and uh, they hired me. So that was all a very good thing. That's so That's great. And, yeah. and as uh, people that are sitting here in Springfield, Illinois, we love your love for Abraham Lincoln so much. Yeah. Uh, so we love our Lincoln well, here. You know, um, we'll, we'll go off here. This is my problem. Uh, I was so upset when they <laughs> took that out and put in, mm. well, first of all, they put in a horrible, uh, it was called holophonic sound where uh, the effect of it was that it felt like flies were crawling around your ears and someone was cutting your hair with a, <laughs> and it had premiered at the studio tour where it was fine. It was like an, a, a sensory thing. And to put it in Lincoln where you were, you were feeling his breath on your face and all these obnoxious things that the cast members would come up to me and say, please, if you can, can you take that out and do something better? And then the, I think it was the 50th anniversary came along and they put in a film that starred uh, Steve Martin. And uh, so we knew that would run its course in a year or two, and then there'd be the opportunity. So I was determined to put the Lincoln back, but use every patriotic show we've ever done. And so there are five pieces of music in that garnered from, I think, as far back as America the Beautiful to uh, you down in Florida, of course, the Hall of Presidents and the, of course, the uh, Golden Dream from American Adventure. Um, and Marty, who, you know, Marty's a tough guy to please. And he said, I think that is the best version of Great Moments with, with Mr. Lincoln that we've ever, ever had. Because, uh, wow. you know, music makes things able to be, go back again and again, you know, as opposed to if it's just 
the dialogue and the speeching uh, making, you, you, you don't really think, oh, I want to go in there because I feel so good. So uh, it was really important to get a lot of music in that this time. And so it's still there and it's been running now 12 years. So that's, that's kind of encouraging. <laughs> I don't know how much longer, but he's our only West Coast version of the Navi with the electronic uh, animation in the head. Uh, so our Lincoln out here is uh, stupendous to look at. So. Wonderful. Brett, you I always go, question? I play, I pay homage. I, you know, whenever I go to Disneyland, I feel like I have to go yeah. see great moments with Mr. Lincoln. Well, my great, great grandfather was Abraham Lincoln's next door neighbor. So wow. I have, there's another reason I have to do that. So yeah. in the Imagineering story on Disney plus, which, wow, we, we had the extreme honor of talking to Leslie Iwerks about her series, oh, yeah. and, you know, a while back. And it was such a wonderful gift uh, to Disney park fans and, and to let us peek into the, like the inner workings of yeah. WDI. Now the third episode is called the Midas touch. And that's pretty much your episode and your story to tell. Now, we don't have time to do a deep dive into everything we'd like to know about all of your amazing projects, including Big Thunder Mountain and Star Tours and Splash Mountain. But if we can talk a little bit about probably one of Vanessa's and my favorite attractions, unfortunately, Craig has not had the opportunity to go to Disneyland, but it is on his list. Yeah. Anyway, but it's very hard to find a favorite when everything is so awesome. But can you share... A little bit about Indiana Adventure creation. Yeah. Uh, in the in the, the ramp up through all those, you know, from Big Thunder being my first, and the fear of like mech wrecking Disneyland by you know how are they, are they getting it? So there was a lot of angst in that, and uh, and then I think moving on to Star Tours was a different era where, you know, the older generation of Imagineers were either leaving or passing away or whatever, and so it became clear that Disney was sort of out of touch with the current popular myth and that being Lucas Spielberg. And the, these are outsiders to grew up with Walt. I mean, and all of them would tell you uh, the everything Walt taught all of us is in their movies. I mean, every, every Lucas character, every Spielberg that they're, that you start out that they're an orphan and the same thing that Bambi and, and, and Snow White and everyone else. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a lot of common threads and, and definite appreciation. So, uh, but the American, this late seventies, early eighties was embracing that. So the move to star Wars, I saw as a necessity because uh, our counterparts, like whether it was black hole or, or Island to the top of the world, were not cutting it. They, they weren't grabbing the entire uh, population at the time. That wouldn't happen until little mermaid, you know, in 89. And here we were in 70 or, 87 so um you know it's getting kind of scary and uh so you know star wars became the entree to indiana jones and it introduced a uh, way of putting people into a experience by letting them feel it and in the case of star tours you were feeling the motion picture um so when luke skywalker said you know ran the the trench in the, the you know first episode four I always said, I've, I've always wanted to do this. And so we had our little pilot Rex say that because that was what everybody was, when it went like that down in, it was, um, we were all getting that visceral thrill. But that I, you know, a lot of people took that, you know, the industry took that to heart and suddenly these simulators were everywhere. And so I'm always 
you know, looking at, okay, what was good about it? Not really that it was a simulator other than we were the first. Um, it was that it was letting you go into the world of Star Wars. And so that's what it's all about, whether it's Snow White or Peter Pan or whatever, it's going into that world. So with the deal for Star Wars, we got the rights to Indiana Jones. And uh, I felt, well, here is uh, a, a chance to pull the rug out from everyone else that's building simulators in malls. You could put, you could give them $5 and they'd slop a 16 millimeter of VHS tape into a thing and it would rock back and forth for five minutes. I mean, it was all over the map. And so uh, I thought, let's buy one of those cheap mall simulators we did. We slapped it onto the back of a truck and then programmed it to run around at a warehouse over in Tonga. And then we blindfolded people and then had Sala going, oh, watch out, Indy, there's a cliff. Uh, oh, the stairway, Indy, it's steep, you know, all this stuff. And, and we, we got feedback and everyone said, it felt like we were really, you know, really doing that. And we know we can build sets, Pirate Ride, Haunted Mansion, we can build sets. So, uh, we, we said goodbye to that, you know, that crude, we called it a mule, uh, and gave it to the engineering department. And they took a year and a half to figure out whether they could actually build a thing that could you know, go down stairways and, and curve around things at right angles and, and whatnot that you shouldn't be able to do. And, uh, you know, and then when, if they got to that point where there was confidence, we would come back in and, and lay out the show. So... They built a full, I mean, it, it was like a real ride up about half a mile from Magic Mountain up in northern uh, Los Angeles area. And we go up there and they, they finally got it to a point where we could go around the track, which is half the length twice. And in those two laps, we would add different programming each time, different lighting each time. So we, you really didn't know you were going through the same area again. And we were able to duplicate the rolling ball thing and, and going down a stairway and whatnot. And uh, I remember when Michael Eisner came, he said, uh, we ought to go and put flyers on all the cars over at Magic Mountain and tell them the best ride is over here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> and he was like really amazing that way. The guys had taken out one a uh, little bit of engineering capability that allowed it to jerk a certain way. And uh, he came up again to write it and he said, something's missing, isn't it? Said, well, um, you know, something's missing. Tell me, well, we had this four way thing and we'll put it back. I want it. I want it back. I can tell it's gone. Wow. wow. That's so cool. Wow. Support of it. And then I remember when George came, he'd had, Donuts and orange juice. And I think they were chocolate donuts. And then he rolled around a couple of times. And I remember he said, okay, I think I, I, I get it. <laughs> I think I'm done now. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, it was, it was really became a breakthrough. Once that, that there's always an Achilles heel, you know, and uh, in the case of Star Tours, that we bought a, a, a system from uh, Red Effusion over in London. And we'd all gone over there and ridden it. We could see the potential and we really, our crisis there was creating a program that uh, didn't get people ill and gave you pauses in between various, you know, leaps forward in the story to rest and get your visual bearings before, you know, heading off on another thing. With, a sim with the Indiana Jones, it was how do we um, get this thing to run mobile out while it's running around on a track and have all the computer commands 
being dispatched out to that. And this is in 19, early 90s, you know. So it had rocket science on that, that car commanding that vehicle to do what, what it was doing. And then we gave them the compounded problem of every ride could be different. So there was A, B, and C programs about eight times in the ride where it would decide whether it was gonna go from an A to a B or a C to a B and why not. And that created a fun thing of um, people saying, oh, I think they've slowed it down. No, 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 <laughs> it was really fast. It was faster than I've ever ridden it before. Because if you got a combination that, you know, headed in the, the tame way or could also pick all the ones that were in the aggressive you know <laughs> thank um, you for all of that wow because it's just so good well, yeah I, the, my biggest disappointment i'll put this on here because i don't care uh i think they ruined the front scene with the three doors and the three pathways um uh they took out the movement in there which really did physically create different space so you you were either way over against the wall on the on the right hand door or you came in the next time you were way over on the left door or in the middle and you everyone could tell that it was a physical thing and i loved reading the internet which was just getting up and running where people would say i've gone to future knowledge and i've had wealth but i don't believe they really go to you the youth area it really doesn't go there you know and like so they go no 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 i've been there but i've never gotten to go to the future knowledge one so uh that was really fun and the word we were dealing with right then, you'd love it to be interactive, but interactive is a one-on-one -on -one thing. And I have to this day not really seen good you know, group interactivity. It's more voting is about all you can do as a group, group activity. But in this, it was unpredictable. And unpredictable, I think, is just as good a word as interactive. So you didn't know what was gonna happen. And the next time you write it in the same day, it could be completely different. And so I thought that was a good solution for rides that have to hold, in this case, 12 people. How are you going to you know, have any sense that you personally did something other than voting? And, and we tried voting once on Horizons in Florida, and it was okay. But you kind of get all four of you saying, let's all four vote for this because I've, I've been on those other two. So we'll all push this button instead of you know, messing it all up. And so it, again, it falls back to a voting thing. So um, I thought Indy was extremely successful and it kind of became uh, a breakthrough, you know, having this, um, you know, ride vehicle that could add a dimension to telling a story, you know, by physically, you know, giving the, the so if there's a snake, it jumps away from the snake, you know, things that, we would do as human beings could be programmed into that ride vehicle and they amplify what you're feeling. Well, it's kind of like every time, you know, if I'm going, to, I go to Disneyland and Walt Disney World, even though I'm kind of in the center in the Midwest. And generally, um, if it's, mm, do I go to Walt Disney World? Do I go to Disneyland? I go Indiana Jones, Disneyland. So, <laughs> so thank you for that. So well, you know, it's I, just I, amazing. You know, they have four parks in Florida, but when you start counting up the various attractions, it comes to more of an equal balance. Like I forget, I'm going to be off here because I'd really have to go through it. But I think the number of dark rides at Disneyland alone is far more than all of all four parks in Florida. Just yeah. in Disney, so. along the Matterhorn and Indiana Jones and Star Tours is in Disneyland. And now we have, you know, this uh, Galaxy's Edge in Disneyland. So, you know, when you look at, 
what one park you can go to and see the most things. I, there's no question it's Disneyland. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great. Uh, it gets that's my a, vote. <laughs> that's a great segue into Vanessa's question about uh, Sleeping Beauty Castle. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've talked about the impact you've had on the parks, but you're one of the few Imagineers who have had an impact on Sleeping Beauty Castle. And um, as you've noticed, we tease Craig that he's never been to Disneyland and doesn't know anything about it. But um, I actually, it was being refurbished when I was there. So I haven't seen the walkthrough either. Brett loves it. So uh, we'd love to ask you if you could speak on how you brought back the idea of a walkthrough uh, through Sleeping Beauty Castle. We had a really good relationship on several projects for uh, home video back when um, DVDs and Blu-rays were the epitome of uh, home entertainment and streaming was just a blink in, the, in everybody's eyes. And there were literally awards going out to the bonus features and so forth. Uh, on the DVD, we had done a recreation of the dark ride we had created for Little Mermaid and it won the award as the best bonus feature because um, they did a digital ride through. And I'm prejudiced to that ride because it was um, more of a, you floated through Ariel's world the way an, a fish or a mermaid would rather than being rolling along on a cart. And uh, I think that was a miss to go that way. Uh, it should have felt more like Peter Pan to me, which was a flight ride, but this was a kind of floating ride thing. And you can see it if you have the DVD, but I don't think they printed it onto the Blu-rays, but I might be wrong on that. Um, but moving on, uh, Sleeping Beauty was uh, marked to be the very first um, Blu-ray that Disney did of an animated feature. And it had a lot of things going for that because it was the only, up till Black Hole, I think it was the only 70 millimeter uh, film, which means converting that to high definition, you're going to get far more clarity than you would from say Snow White or Alice where they're on regular 35 millimeter film. So then we, a couple of friends and myself uh, had got, uh, Randy Thornton had found uh, the, the soundtracks from Germany that were stereo and they didn't know they still had them. And so uh, we were able to convince home video to re score the the blu-ray to those original german tracks so the sound was going to make a huge leap forward and all this was great because it made it seem like blu-ray was a quantum jump uh, by taking a film that would be beyond any of their other films and then adding a, a six track uh, sound to it that nobody had ever heard the clarity that was on that so there was this huge effort and um, I approached management saying, um, what if we got um, the castle reopened? And uh, there was a lot of things that happened after 9-11, a lot of things that probably were cautionary and needed to be done. And then other things that were taking advantage of saving money uh, by not operating the walkthrough in the castle and various things like that. Um, so, we were now way beyond that, like eight or nine years or something. And uh, so we were readdressing and examining what things were closed because they should be and what things really, you know, are part of the DNA of Disneyland. And the castle, you know, our castle is the smallest one. So we have to make every effort to make it the most charming and uh, the sweetest, if you will, because uh, it's not dramatically big or 
fantastic, like the one we did in Paris with a dragon and one and it's right behind me here. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so uh, I went over to the studio and they said, if you can have it there for the same date that we released the disc, you've got to go ahead. But you know, if, if you don't think you can do that, we aren't going to reprint uh, all of those discs and strip off the banner that was on the, the disc. But I have a thing here. I'm just going to jump up for a second and grab it. Sure. <laughs> I still have it. And uh, oh wow, wow. That. that's oh great. wow. Fit backwards on yours too. No, no, no. no. no we, we can, can, read can it. see it. It's great. Yeah, good. Because I'm reading it backwards. But anyway, so I hedged my bets on this by saying before the last leaves of autumn fall. Sleeping Beauty will once again grace these halls because we were really scared we weren't going to make it, you know. So <laughs> it will open on this day. Uh, we we managed to do it, uh, but we were literally at the um, Chris Merritt, who is working with me as the art director on it. We were up at Michael's Floral Supplies that the night before. <laughs> And we had to buy red, white roses so we could dip them in red uh, blacklight paint um, and then airbrush them and all that. That was done between nine o'clock when they closed the store and then the following morning when we re we opened. So that was oh, a wow. night for everyone. <laughs> but it looks wow. great. And it's like, it's scaling back to a very small presentation in that castle because it's barely like little window displays at the main street, um, you know, um, main street emporium. But um, this is where they learned how to do all the effects that are really a big part of the haunted mansion. And when I was a little kid um, looking in this castle, you know, it was just as amazing. And you could stand there at each window and going, well, how are all those demons coming out of that pit? You know, how is the fire going up over there? I didn't know anything about Pepper's ghost and all these illusions and things that they had in there. And so that was literally a way of doing the test for the Haunted Mansion in a very um, small and controlled way to see what works and what doesn't work. For instance, one thing we had to take out, there was an echo, um, a bottomless pit. Walt must have liked bottomless pits because there's one on Tom Sawyer Island and there was <laughs> one in here, but it had a, a tape in it back in the 50s that would, you know, you'd go, hello, 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 hello. And it was a lot of fun. But kids weren't content to just say the word hello. So I'll leave that to you. <laughs> so they do tease me that I haven't been to Disneyland, although I am going to rush out there as soon as I, as soon as humanly possible. But I have certainly been to Walt Disney World. And you have uh, sort of a now famous quote, if the Magic Kingdom is fantasy made real, then Epcot is reality made fantastic. Can you talk about the design experience of Epcot and in particular uh, your attraction journey into imagination? Yeah, I, you know, there was, that was a time frame uh, at Disney where leadership was still very much in the hands of the Imagineers that were there with Walt, uh, Marty Scalar and John Hench and um, so forth. And so there was a mission a sense of a mission that Walt had left on the videos and stuff about creating this, you know, solving all the problems for the cities of tomorrow and, you know, making uh, a way that the public could understand all these great things that were going on, which is sort of a continuation of the industrial Tomorrowland that was at Disneyland in 1967, which 
was right after Walt passed away, but he knew everything about it and had followed all the, the design of the Carousel of Progress and Monsanto's adventure through inner space and so forth. So, uh, you know, I think that spirit and, and so as opposed to working on, you know, Big Thunder, which was fun, I, you know, we we're all going into this that so we have it'll be exciting to do, but we're working with industry and we're working with great scientists around the world. And each one of the pavilions had a team of people that were put on it to uh, monitor and help with the technical being correct with our predictions for the future and so forth. Anyway, um, I had worked through uh, the Seas Pavilion. We couldn't get anybody interested in sponsoring it, at least for opening day. And then I moved over to the land pavilion and I had approached that with a ecology a sense about, you know, preserving the wonders of the land. Well, nobody's in that business to make money. That's mm -hmm. a very nice to do thing, but making money off the land is mostly food production or um, harvesting, you know, uh, wood and whatnot. Um, so it switched over to craft foods coming in to sponsor it. And they kind of felt that I would have been, pushing too hard to get it ecologically uh, oriented. And so it was given to Rolly Crump. And I, I left for a year to go down to Big Thunder at Disneyland and clear my mind of Epcot because I put so much effort into the Seas Pavilion and then so much effort into the land. It just wasn't a positive thing. So Big Thunder kind of became a great um, release. And I was doing things with my hands like sculpting concrete and painting and things that uh, you know were good because you, you again learn something by doing it as to how it's done so in future design you know those things well out of, all of a sudden I got a call while I was down there at the park and they said uh, Kodak is interested in getting into Epcot it's really late we're a year and something at behind uh, but they don't want the Seas Pavilion and they don't want Horizons they want something that really shows how imaginative we are, you know? So I, we kept playing with that word in all the lines of dialogue. Well, can't you do, you guys are all about imagination. You're Imagineers, we should do something. And, um, and so all of a sudden we settled on doing imagination. And uh, it was interesting because all the other ones were very strongly defining these key concepts about leading us into the future, whether it was energy or transportation or, communications and the land and stewardship of the land and you know finding the wonders of the oceans and all that and then here was imagination um that did, it, it somehow was a disconnect with the the seriousness of all the other shows and yet the more we explored it we realized you couldn't do anything in any of the other realms without imagination and having grown up in a family where you know there was always that you just don't have any imagination. You, you know, we all hear that from our parents. <laughs> <laughs> On your own, don't you have an imagination? So uh, I really felt the number one important thing was that to stress that we all have imagination. So it's just how we use it. And whether you're baking a birthday cake or you're building an atomic weapon, uh, it's the same process. And so we, we originally thought, how do we nail that process very quickly and simply we didn't nail it quickly, but we got it down very simply that you gather information, like I'm giving all of you information right now. You're storing it because I know you're taping this and whatnot. 
Um, and then you combine it with other things that you've got and create something new. And so it was gather, store, and recombine. Um, and then as you'd say that, you go, well, those are kind of lyrical. Why don't we get somebody that can write music to, to you know, put that into a song? And of course, uh, Marty had been pretty open about, look, we have so much work to do on this. If you have anybody in mind that you feel is the right talent to put on these shows, you got my permission to go and get them. And so here was a chance to work with Richard and Robert Sherman and um, who were, you know, to me as a child, the Mary Poppins. I, I sat in the, in the tiki room with a, a tape recorder that I'd hidden in a Disneyland box because you weren't allowed to bring any recording media into the park. <laughs> I don't know why, but um, so I'm in there opening the box, getting the microphone out and recorded the tiki room. And so, you know, I couldn't believe that we were actually meeting with them. And um, so they came on board and they not only wrote the song for the ride, but they, they did two more songs for that pavilion. So we got almost the, uh, uh, what would you like, a theme, uh, a theme park version of a motion picture soundtrack. You know, there's three Sherman Brothers songs in that one pavilion. So, um, but I think the key thing was figuring out how, who's going to guide us through and uh, you know that one of the quick shortcomings is if you preach and you say this is how you imagine. Uh, so we right away said we can't do that. We've got to say this is how our stars that are going to lead you through imagine things, and mm -hmm. it's a fanciful way. And so we thought, what are stereotypes? Well, there's the old Santa Claus knowledge figure that that has all the all that's ever gone before in his brain, and then there's the little kid that after two seconds bored stiff and well, okay, I've opened all the presents. Isn't there anything more? You know, what, what's, what's, and, and we felt like great comedian teams like Laurel and Hardy or, or Abbott and Costello or Dean Martin and Jerry, Jerry Lewis there, they have to complement one another. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit negative right here on the current one, because you've got two goofs in the lead roles between uh, Eric Idle and Figment, you know, they don't complement one another. They're both mm -hmm. wacky. Mm -hmm. And uh, also it features that you're not imaginative and you have to go on this ride in order to unlock your imagination, which I felt was a really wrong thing to say. And I think popularity wise, there's no comparison to what the first show did and what you know, I, I'm amazed that Figment stays charming to people because I don't think his charm that he had in the first ride uh, is anywhere in, in the new attraction. But anyway, um, the two characters complemented one another and, and just, it was like fire in a bottle, you know, and the Dreamfinder name came easy, but <laughs> Figment, uh, and you've heard the story about me watching Magnum P.I. and they hit a goat in the garden and uh, the old butler is furious about it. And, uh, and Magnum says, oh, it's just, it's just a figment of your imagination. There's nothing wrong in the garden. And like, wow. <laughs> and, uh, I'm sitting there, figments don't eat grass. Well, then what do they do? What do they do? And I'm like, oh, my God, that's the name of our, our character. And, you know, you come into work the next day and you go, you, I grabbed the little model. In fact, I actually, I did this last week, so I know where he is. And he looks ugly. You're not going to believe that this is Figment. But, um, we, you know, we hadn't worked it out. And none of the great, I can't get him out of his cage. So I have him in a cage. Or, <laughs> it wasn't funny. Because, um, 
Yeah. Look at him. Oh, wow. My goodness. Wow. I grabbed <laughs> neat figment, you know. And, wow. And of course, he became cuter and wonderful and more embracing in, in, in ways that this doesn't show. But some of it was there, you know. You got, he's clearly not a mean dragon. He's kind of yeah. cranky, more cranky, but um, anyway. <laughs> Once you said figment, I mean, everyone said, well, why didn't we think of that? But you, you, you have to have these odd things that you, you are not planned. I mean, had I not watched Magnum PI that night? I don't know. But now you go online and you type in the word figment images and every single one is that dragon. Well, it's a, it's a, an English word that's existed for hundreds of years. And, right. I call it mental real estate. And, you know, if you, it's free to buy mental real estate, but you can make it really, really valuable by connecting it emotionally with something everybody really cares about. So um, I think those two becoming the, especially Figma became the mascot of Epcot, you know, and still is, even though his attraction isn't, isn't very good. So, um, you know, it was a We're preaching to that choir here. I'm like, like oh gosh. <laughs> it would make a, a figment movie, an animated film with figment would be amazing. Uh, that would, would be it is to go forward with a ride, you know, the, the, to play up the IP, you know, or whatever the, the word is. So, um, I just think he's an under uh, uh, dramatically underutilized. Because we know he's got the fan base, you know, and it's very seldom that you have that you don't have to work really hard to get that part of it, you know, to know that it's already there. I mean, Marvel did five very successful comic book series, you know, from this um, that just because they felt like, wow, that if you're we'll do it because we know that that's going to sell. They could they could just be clear that the fan base was strong enough. It can lead the whole Garden Festival down there or the pigments uh art festival and, and whatnot so he still has that that spark he does yeah and you know it's it's really interesting because uh i've read those marvel comics and really enjoyed that story and so to hear that creation of uh, of it from you is just a it's just a, a wonderful story to to be able to hear um and now kind of going back to some other attractions in disneyland and uh brett has our next question well, Walt's famous quote says, Disneyland will never be completed. It will continue to grow as long as there's imagination left in the world. Now, did that quote give you some comfort when you were surveying the bare land of the original Fantasyland before you were starting to build the new Fantasyland? I mean, gulp? We already knew that, you know, it's sort of oh, like, huh? you know, things run their course for one reason or another. And so by 1983, we'd already taken out um, Nature's Wonderland and the mules and the stagecoaches and Big Thunder and replaced that. So even personally, I had been involved in that where I thought, oh, my God, I'm ruining Frontierland. And, uh, <laughs> and I would definitely say that Fantasyland was more scary that way, but it was so dilapidated. I mean, it was it was looking like a, you know, a, a, a very nice carnival, but, you know, there was not. It didn't, it didn't hold up to, we were now we're building Epcot and, um, you know, you look at the world showcase and all of that. What inspired me, I was looking for, well, why is a Walt reason we're doing this? And I looked at storybook land and storybook land is all these gorgeously little perfect miniature 
uh, recreations of the settings for the stories. And I thought, well, what if we let each, you know, each film story that we're doing as a dark ride or whatever, um, breathe in its facade so that the English stories, Mr. Toad and Peter Pan and Alice are kind of grouped together and we could create a kind of a, a fairy land world of England on that side and the medieval Snow White and then moving on into the fantasy of Pinocchio, which somehow looks more Germanic than it does Italian in the Disney movie. But then we kind of ran with that rather than switching it to Italy. I think it, you know, that, that was compounded with the fact that it was overcrowded. It had been built to a different scale. Disneyland is doing as almost as many visitors as Walt Disney World. And our lands and everything are about half the size, you know, so and in most cases, I like that. I'd rather be crowded in a comfortable space than open and, and there's, there, you feel a void in it, that there's too much. And we had the saying about never build a, a, an attraction for Easter Sunday, <laughs> just build it for the normal Sunday, you know, otherwise it's going to look deserted um, in, in most of the year. So um, when we tore it down on that last, you know, and we came down to look at the wreckage, that was pretty scary um, because the the signal for the popcorn lights along the edges came on, but they were all just hanging in, you know, shreds and a few of them popped to life and came on. They hadn't shut them down. Um, so we had that, what have we done feeling? Um, but we, we had a lot of things to help ensure against that. Whether the ride would be better or not as good was one question, but we said, let's make them all 25% longer um, so it, just in that one thing, we could check off, that'll be better. They're going to be, you know, instead of 90 seconds, they're going to be two minutes, you know, whatever. And so things like the toad ride, we took away the hat shop that was um, taking up about a quarter of the building that it was in and gave that to toad. And, and Peter Pan, we slid out the entrance into what was the walkway and added the whole big pirate ship that you guys have in Florida. And, uh, Peter Pan, or Pinocchio was a brand new ride. And then Alice, we added a whole new scene at the end after you go outdoors and come down, we enter the tea party at the end of it. So we, we kind of said before we get into whether our designs are better or worse than the initial designs, we're going to make sure from a statistical thing that we're, we're starting with more space and more scenes and whatnot. Then you start working on you know, the rest of it. And, and, and gradually you start to get the confidence, you know, well, the soundtracks are better, you know, because we're using higher quality sound. The animation is better. The dimensionality uh, in most of the rides was something they couldn't afford in Toad and, and Alice and whatnot in the first go round. So, you know, it was um, not out of character with what I think Walt said it would all be changing and we'd already bought that that this is something that's going to be all of our careers from now on. And so that wasn't an issue. It was why and what would Walt have done if he could have done it the way he wanted and uh, whether he ever thought of storybook land being the models for uh, the land or not, I'll never know. But it, if he liked that enough to not just, it was originally going to be there for just a year or two until they came up with a good idea for Storybook Land. And guess what? It's still there today. So <laughs> still there. Mm -hmm. Something must have been right about it. And it kind of became our 
something we looked to to bring that quality to full size in the land. That's so excellent. Um, so we've we've discussed so many of your individual attractions and, and what you've brought to that, but you also were tasked with bringing uh, an entire new park to the world and to work on Euro Disney and Disneyland Paris. And you mentioned that the poster, for those of us watching the video, uh, the poster right behind you is of the castle. We had a chance to talk to Tom K. Morris, and he talked about particularly designing that castle uh, with you. But can you talk about the experience of bringing like an entire park to life? Uh, how is that different from just bringing a single attraction to life? Well, first of all, uh, when I was approached that I, would I want to go over there, I mean, I can't think of like a greater opportunity than to go to France um, to work, you know, and come up with something. That being said, uh, building a park in Orlando or building a park in Anaheim, consider the guests. Um, I can tell you for sure, nobody comes to Disneyland to go to Anaheim. Uh, there is no bus route that leaves Disneyland and takes you to the center of Anaheim, which is a CVS drugstore and a, uh, I don't know, a Ralph's Market or something like that. <laughs> uh, this, and probably Orlando would be close to that too. There's a lot of other projects in the city like SeaWorld and, and Universal and whatnot, uh, but nobody really goes down to the city and there's no sense of history in Anaheim or Orlando that is astonishing. Now you, you go to Paris and you've got the art capital of the world. It's a city of romance. It's a city of uh, architectural wonders. Um, and so the reality is every guest to Disney World or Disneyland uh, in Paris is going to go to the city and more than likely is going to choose to stay in the city as opposed to the guarantee you have at Walt Disney World that given that they have enough funding, our guests are going to stay on our property because it's just so much better. Um, but not the case in, in Paris. I mean, like you couldn't go home and say, well, we stayed out at Disney, you know, the whole time. So there was, how do we, how do we complement, you know, what is already a fully functional tourist Mecca of the city of Paris rather than come in and assume it'll all be in our control. It's not going to happen. So I wouldn't say everyone felt that, but those of us on the, 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 park team definitely felt that and there was kind of a division between um, the uh, resort area that built the hotels and the park team and the schism between those two groups I think came to a head when uh, Eddie Sato who was Main Street I had a great team of five designers Eddie was on Main Street and you've talked to Tom Morris who had Fantasyland and Chris Teets Adventureland and Jeff Burke uh for tomorrow, uh, for Frontierland and, and then Tim Delaney for uh, Discoveryland. Um, all of them grew up with Disneyland. All of them knew why in many ways, Disneyland has a charm and a personality that as spectacular as Walt Disney World is, it doesn't quite have that. And whether it's the Walt factor, of, you know, Walt laid it out, we'll never know, or just that it was all part of our childhood. And whereas World was part of something that was built during our adult um, life but we we had the dna of that so uh i knew i wouldn't have to worry at the level of each land or each ride because there were five people you know that we would carry that and the only things that would come up to me would be things they couldn't handle politically or whatever and i'd get my fists 
<laughs> but the fun one was Eddie came up with the idea of doing a, instead of a ticket booth area in the front or a main gate, he said, you know, studying this sense of Paris and the sense of the desire for hospitality and a gift to the people before we take money from the people. This was all in the, the great you know, places you visit, the castles, the, 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 the Louvre setback in the Garden of the Tuileries and whatnot. There's a great sense of giving to the public before and, and out of that great gift of these beautiful gardens and everything you say, it's worth me giving you something for creating this beauty. So Eddie had this idea, we'll do a beautiful inn, a gorgeous inn, and you'll enter it, it'll be warm inside, and that's where you'll have the ticketing. And, and the gardens out in front of it will be very welcoming because an inn is a sense of home and belonging. So we pitched it to Michael Eisner, and he goes, I love it. What are you going to pay for it with? And he said, well, you're supposed to love it so much that you give us more money to do it. <laughs> It's not going to work that way. You know, there's a budget here. And um, he said, why don't you do this? Decide which of the hotels we're building in the other complex there for the resort and take it out and we'll give you the money to do this hotel. And so uh, one of the architects was Robert Venturi, who pre-internet, I didn't know much about him other than he'd done some World's Fair work in, uh, I think it was down in New Orleans or uh, is there a fair, a World's Fair in New Orleans? I can't remember. It was in the South. And, Knoxville? Uh, yeah, Knoxville. It had a Wonder Wall. Is that the one? Uh, and it was like thing and, and contemporary art and stuff. Well, I felt it was out of, uh, a little bit out of character with what we were doing, which was mostly historic, um, you know, representation. So I was given the task of explaining to him why he wasn't going to get to do that hotel, which was fireworks like oh, hey. michael, michael eisner documented it in his book a work on progress but anyway so we got that money and we built the, the disneyland hotel as a real hotel so michael wouldn't fund it as just a nice beautiful representation of a fake inn he said i want it to be the hotel and of course the fight all along on that was that no one would want to be uh, hearing all the rigmarole inside the theme park and the distractions and they might be standing in their balcony improperly attired and all these things were flying out their underwear on the balconies. None of that has happened and of course it turned out to be our number one hotel and the one that we don't ever worry about um, it not being booked you know. Uh, Michael Jackson famously lived there for uh, six months up in the presidential suite at the top. So um, it's it, it worked really, really well. And it proved a thing, which has now become a product for us, which is the Californian out here uh, in Tokyo. They have two hotels that are the gateways to the park. And, and all of that came out of that. But when you go back to when you're trying to pitch something that's never been done before, and I said, we have when you step off of the RER trains from Paris, you have to see something where you go. We have made the right decision. There's no question. This is the the place we're going to spend the whole day. It's stupendously beautiful, and you come down these gardens and there's fountains and all of that, and uh, you go. This is amazing, you know. And we haven't paid a cent yet. It's just a beautiful place. So it was perfect match to the expectations of the French culture and uh, and yet it was a very American you know hotel and symbolism and whatnot so it was it was that 
constant awareness of what the expectations were and then balancing out how do we bring Disney and Americana into that without, you know, creating culture conflict, you know. Um, and each land had its own challenges with that. But uh, if you want another 20 minutes, we can, we can go. <laughs> We've also had the chance to speak to Kevin Rafferty and, and some other Imagineers, and they've all short, shared so many amazing stories about Marty's Clark. And I just wanted to ask if you had any particular uh, story that you wanted to share with us. Wow. Um, no, I think I worked with directly with Marty more than anyone there. But I think the interesting thing is he was a verbal thinker. He's a writer. And so was Kevin Rafferty. Um, and I was a visual thinker. And uh, it can oftentimes cause a little bit of uh, distrust, I think, in, in both groups, because uh, you're processing the very same thought in very different ways. And so I remember uh, we had a psychologist that came in uh, to work with all the teams and figure out, you know, this crazy thing of Imagineering and how do we all work together? And I was talking to her uh, about, uh, I, I just somehow find that Marty, you know, doesn't trust me or something in some ways and whatnot. And she said to me, well, you know, I've, I've really studied all of you guys and Marty and you in particular, in this case, she said, I would draw it to this. He said, she said, um, because you're visual, if you, if you were making a birthday cake or a, 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 just a loaf of bread, I think she said, uh, and you had the milk and the flour and the, you know, the yeast and whatever you needed on the table, uh, you'd be comfortable because you know, and it's sort of like when I told you about Indy, once we got that ride vehicle mm -hmm. working, I knew we can build sets and all of that stuff. You know, not, that doesn't worry me. So, um, you know, I, I, she said, so you, you're really comfortable at that point. But Marty, he needs to smell that bread coming out of the oven and the aroma of the melting butter over the, the top of it. And so when you jump in there and say, yeah, it's going to be great. It's wonderful. It's all figured out. He's sitting there going, oh my God, there's still so many things that could go wrong and so many steps that we haven't followed yet. And you're interpreting that to be uh, the distrust when in fact, it's just a different way of processing, uh, you know, things. So that was a very eye-opening uh, moment. And then it was funny because I tried to dramatize it to Marty one day. I, I brought in a sack of flour and some yeast and eggs and stuff and put it on the table because I knew I was going to be showing something, you know, talking to him about something that was just embryonic, that was just like, you know, nonsense, you know? And so I, he said, what is, what is all this? And I said, well, it was just a way of taking, uh, you know, this, this woman's idea and letting you know that today we're going to be talking at this phase of the project you know <laughs> kind of looked at me with so are you saying that i need to be babied on the, you know and so it's like oh my god so i so but anyway i did learn a lot from that uh discussion and i think um you know it's just it, it was a real eye-opener at how different we all see things you know and so it was just a way that i had to when from that moment on, and it was maybe midway through my career that I had to think about how is Marty looking at this? Because we see it very, very differently. And I think that my best moment with Marty 
was the last moment I had with Marty. Um, it was 23 and 17. Were you there? Yeah, I was. I was, I, yeah, it was very touching that anyway, go ahead, please. <laughs> so, um, was Marty and I are going to talk about our five of our most, you know, influenced that the, the Imagineers that influenced each of us. And, um, and they were divided. Marty thought, well, maybe Kevin Rafferty can host it. And I said, look, Marty, they've scheduled it for the giant Anaheim arena. It's 4,000 plus seats and blah, blah, blah. I said, we've got to do uh, something to draw in people. And he goes, well, they'll come for us. And I said, no, I said, we need a, a star here. And uh, I knew John because John is like the biggest rabid Disney fan, John Stamos. Um, and so Marty goes, what does John Stamos know about any, you know? And I said, well, if you were a fan, you'd know that John Stamos is this big fan and he has mm -hmm. a Disney sign and blah, blah, blah. And, and he goes, but he doesn't know anything about it. I said, yes, he does. He's an amazing fount of knowledge about all this stuff. And so uh, Stephen Vagnini, who works in Florida, was able to contact John. And John says, I can't believe you're asking me to do this, you know, and uh, it, it would be so great. So Marty was very apprehensive because he thought it should be like an archivist or somebody that uh, knew everything about Disney. But what it turned into was probably the most joyous hour of uh, the two of us chatting as friends and and then john feeding absolute lines where marty became a stand-up comedian that day i remember <laughs> john had been talking about wearing old spice to attract <laughs> yes <laughs> and then he said but i you know, we were talking about adventure through inner space he says i never was able to get a girl on inner space darn it and then, and then yes Right. You weren't wearing your old spice, you know, and like uh, the whole audience went crazy. And so at the end of that, I saw Marty go over to John and he said, this was just great. This was the best it could have been. And then he came over to me and he said, I am so glad that you pushed for it to go this way because this has been great. And I said to him, I said, well, we're all going over to the park to celebrate. Uh, why don't you come along? And he said, no, I've got to go home. I'm going to be uh, the chief cook and bottle washer to my wife who's going in for an operation and of course while she was in the hospital that was it for Marty and so that was the last I ever saw him and I've got that on a really nice uh, disc uh, and so what's great about that I can look at Marty and I absolutely freed of any kind of uh <laughs> you know different ways of seeing things but but talking about all the people we loved and with somebody who was feeding us stuff because he was you know he was the audience himself mm -hmm. for hearing all this stuff it was absolutely perfect day such a fan such, yeah um no, vanessa did if you haven't seen it I, I just Google that, and it's. I think it. Yeah, it's available. Actually, I sent that to them for them to look at. So I'm like, like I was there. It was amazing. <laughs> so, Vanessa, uh, why don't we go back to your question? Sure. Well, for those of us who know to pay careful attention to the Main Street windows, it can be a, an emotional and uh, nostalgic moment in the park, seeing the names of those who helped contribute to Disneyland and its legacy. What was it like receiving your own name on a Main Street window? And can you tell us about that experience you had on the dedication day? Well, the Disneyland one, which you're referring to, I think is yeah. the one that 
stands out because even though I was like 23, I got my name uh, in Walt Disney World over the Coke. Uh, I don't know, is it Casey's down there now? They Casey's. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so it's on the side there going over to the restaurant. Um, and uh, it called, it's the Camelot Corporation. And it says, it has four of our names and we were just the little kids down there. And we were all staying in the Camelot apartments, which are still on Orange Orange Avenue, I think. And uh, <laughs> that's great. Kept them up really nice. They look really good. They look great for a 50-year-old apartment complex. Um, anyway, so that was just a thing they did. And then also in Paris, when we finished that, um, it was just a thing they did. So I'm uh, on a window on Main Street uh, with Marty Scalar. The two of us are on, on that one. The Disneyland one has a whole different context because the windows, as you just described it, walking down the street are all the people that I grew up with, you know, from Walt and his father, Elias, you know, on down through Claude Coates and Richard Sherman and Marty. And they're all first generation Imagineer names. So I was floored by that because I think I'm kind of the first second generation. You know, I wasn't there for the building of it and all that other than as a kid getting to go but i mean all the other names are people that you can draw back to the formation of disneyland so i kind of had this it was apprehension and uh, that i didn't deserve it and like why is this happening and uh, all of that plus the excitement of it and it was kind of a neat day because it was the day before uh my my teacher that i told you was my mentor dr maxine merlino she was still she was alive that day at 101 and um, they uh, were telling her what was happening. And I put her name into my little, you know, dedication between her and Claude and all the people that had uh, made my career happen. And uh, I felt like it was sort of, I don't know, special that she lasted and was able to know that, you know, because it was sort of a, you know, a, a fine ending to my career, I guess, in, in terms of a, physical honor in many ways i i think it's better than the legend award you know because disneyland was what inspired me for my whole childhood and uh, the people that were up there were the people that made that inspiration um, so to be the first of hopefully there'll be a, a series more now of people that that continue this into the second generation but um, to kind of be the first one uh, who wasn't one of the creators of Disneyland was um, kind of exciting. Brett, can you uh, ask your question? Well, how do you describe Disney magic? And do you have any moments that you can share? Disney magic? um, I mean, probably the first Disney magic to me was Walt on the TV show, you know, in that there was a regularity to television that was broken by the, the, it was called Disneyland. And there was an ulterior motive because it was a year before Disneyland as the place. So he was using it to share with us dream, you know, little peeks at this dream that was going to be a place. And as a seven-year-old, I'm going, wait a minute, there's going to be a place where all this stuff happens, where Davy Crockett lives and Alice in Wonderland. So that was, that was magic that I couldn't describe, you know, like you were, you weren't old enough. I remember, I remember writing Peter Pan when when it finally opened a year later and uh 
telling my aunt that you're going along and then the vehicle rolls off the end of the track and then it glides down to a, and you must go on the lower track. And I didn't know how to describe it. It just felt like, whew, we go like that. And uh, so there was a magic in Disneyland that uh, to me, uh, I think to this day, Peter Pan has an aspirational aspect to it that uh, doesn't wear thin. And, you know, you ask yourself, I use this as one of my key things when I'm teaching design things that don't design an attraction for the first ride. That's easy because everybody is going to go out there and ride it. Uh, design for the 20th ride. And imagine that you're looking at the building and there's a, tw- a half hour wait, an hour wait, whatever. And you've decided it's worth getting in line to ride just the 20th time. What is it that defines that? And that's that magic thing. And on, in regard to Peter Pan, Ray Bradbury, the writer, um, science fiction writer, uh, wrote it one day early on in the 50s with Charles Lawton, the actor. And after getting out, he just fired off a postcard to Walt and just said, Walt, I'll be eternally grateful. Today, I flew out of a child's bedroom window in a pirate galleon over moonlit London on my way to the stars. Ray. Wow. You know, you're yeah. sitting there going, where could you do that? <laughs> <laughs> right. All you have to do is wait 40 minutes, then you can do it again, <laughs> you know. Like, so uh, exactly kind of defines what Disney magic is, uh, in a way that we should be so you know, that little tiny ride that's probably one of the smaller buildings in the park commands that uh that thought. And still to this day in the sophisticated world that we live in does. Um, so I think when you're trying to define Disney magic, you should try to analyze something like that and uh, see, see how close you can come to putting that into um, newer and more spectacular. That only goes so far. That's for the wow. ride. Why do you ride it 20 times? You know, it's that. <laughs> It just it's, it's so many wise words <laughs> that were in that. So thank you, thank you so much, Vanessa. Uh, we're gonna try your rapid fire questions here and see how that goes. Okay, and so this is just fun, so you can let loose and just say what comes to mind. Um, favorite Disney film? Sleeping Beauty. This wall. I'm gonna. Let's see. We've got. We've got. Oh, it's hard to do here. There are. Yeah. Backgrounds and some cells there. And there's oh, wow. some drawings and cells. And uh, over there, there's a whole mess of them. So, oh, wow. wow. That's amazing. Well, thank yeah. you for that. Wow. <laughs> um, weakest part of the Disney thing. So, going back to your question about the castle, it's Sleeping Beauty Castle. So, you know, it was like my cup of tea, you know. So. Right. How exciting. Um, okay, now favorite attractions. I put that plural on there because if, if, yeah. it's, if, it's, if it's like picking amongst your children, you can pick more than one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have to like, you know, pre- prior to my involvement in Disneyland, it would be Pirates and, and Peter Pan, you know, for the reasons we've talked. So those two predate me. And then I would say at Disneyland, Indiana Jones, uh, after, you know, my, my involvement in my you know, but each one while you're doing it, it's your favorite. You know, it, it has to be that way. You can't be working on them thinking, well, this isn't as good as what 
you find these reasons to really like each thing. But looking at them all now, I'd say that it was fun to work on indie because we got to work with a property. I love those movies and uh, got to meet Harrison Ford. And I've worked with Karen Allen and John Rice Davis on a promo film that was done. You know, we were all in costume and everything. That was cool. So yeah, indie. And then Walt Disney World. Uh, everything I worked on gets torn out. So, uh, <laughs> oh. oh, that's right. Yeah, twenty thousand leagues. Sorry, sorry. Journey into imagination because even oh. in the, the film, you know, magic journeys and uh, the ride is a, a shell of what it was. So, um, I would say in that park, it would be American Adventure. Um, it never fails to. I can't go home to a, a, you know to California without a dose of that one um, mm -hmm. and the voice of liberty uh, singers in the foyer uh, i won't go in if they're over with they're not running that at that time because you've got to have the whole experience whole experience yes. yeah wow so that's probably my favorite one there i love the tower of terror in uh, the studio tour and uh, in the magic kingdom that i think that the um Haunted Mansion has a slight edge over Disneyland's version, and just slight. But um, who knows? That may change because there's been some ads to ours while the park has been closed. Oh wow! And our Snow White ride, by the way, is yes, amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I've ridden it three times. Um, it's worth riding three times because there's so much to see, and there's definitely wow. scary stuff still in it. It's not <laughs> turned only to love and kisses all the way through anyway perfect um, that's side thing, but it's it's now holds its own against the other dark right that's great Paris excellent thunder railroad is the best big thunder we've ever done over there it's just light years beyond the, the stateside one so there's no comparison on that and uh, and then when we get over to uh, Asia, there's Winnie the Pooh that is amazing in uh, the Magic Kingdom, and their Splash Mountain is, is about twice as big as, as the other Splash Mountains uh, in Tokyo. And then I love Mystery Manor at uh, you know in uh, Hong Kong, and the jungle isn't bad either. That goes around. It's weird because it was built on the rivers of America, if you can imagine that. The, so the, oh, this rivers of America, but it's the Jungle Cruise, and it's quite good. Uh, and then in uh, Shanghai, there are two attractions, the Pirates of the Caribbean, which is, redefines the ride completely. It's not in any way related to the others, but it's spectacular. And the Tron life cycle ride. So you'll get that soon in Walt Disney World. Yeah. That's, I'm probably missing someone and I'm going to get cards and letters saying. Yeah. <laughs> You've covered Listeners, yourself with that part. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll move on then to favorite park snack. Snack. Oh, that's easy. It is the bacon wrapped asparagus at the Bengal Barbecue in Disneyland. Nice. Perfect. And so then finally, oh, go ahead. A mint julep from New Orleans Square. Mint julep. <laughs> There's nothing like a mint julep. We tried to re julep. recreate it here, and which just we've failed miserably. But yeah, we have um, to go back to Disneyland for mint juleps. So yes, so lessened on that is they do not put the carbonated water in it that was originally part of it when Walt was there. 
because uh, he he lived for the opening of uh, New Orleans, and so it started with carbonated water in the flavoring, and they dropped that, and it's flat. And I don't mind it, but it was much better the way it was. So there's just a oh, hmm. okay, we'll try it that way. We'll do it old school style. We'll so. Use you know use carbonated. Perfect. And then finally, favorite restaurant. Wow. I, mean, I think you have to go all around the world again with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the biggest or the best, but I really like Cafe Orleans at Disneyland. The atmosphere and their French fries are to die for. Uh, so uh, I, I'll just go with that because the 33 Club doesn't really count because, you know, it's not exactly accessible, but it is good too. Uh, and Walt Disney World, I love the Mishikoshi um, Tempanyaki thing upstairs, mm -hmm. and Epcot is my favorite there. Um, the castle uh, and the magic. Mm -hmm. And let's see what else. Oh, uh, the Brown Derby in um, the studio tour. Don't have a favorite out in uh, the animal kingdom. You know, I eat it all. I've eaten it all of them. I, I just haven't had one that, oh, I can't go to that park without that one. Whereas the other ones I've given you kind of are there with the attractions that so you have to do the, that kind of thing. In Paris, it's Waltz, amazing. Mm. Uh, and then uh, I love the atmosphere of the Blue Lagoon, but I don't like fish. So I'm kind of out of luck there. <laughs> so Cinderella's, the Chateau de Cendrillon is good too. And over in, didn't I just ate at a Main Street. It was so good to have a hamburger and fries in Hong Kong. The, the Main Street Cafe was great or whatever it was called. Um, and, um, and then in uh, Shanghai, Castle. Castle was amazing. The castle was like a 33 club quality and it's open to everybody and so that's that. great there are desserts and everything or designer desserts with all of so. oh, i'm ready to go <laughs> i'm going it's on my list i want to travel internationally i want to see it all but you know i will so and i knock up all three i've been to tokyo several times but i worked there but i we did a trilogy thing uh, about three years back and uh, it was really fun to compare them all, you know, in rapid order was, was pretty neat. That's really great. Wow. You have been so, so, so gracious with your time and also uh, your creativity. It's just, it's, it's amazing the uh, benefits that we get to reap as an audience and uh, as fans of Disney because of the hard work that you've done. Uh, we have one final question for you. Having been part of such landmark celebrations during your career, what are you excited about when we think about Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary celebration this year? I'm excited that I'm still here to enjoy it because all the it's scary. Almost all the people that I worked with during that opening year, I was down there for uh, about nine, eight months of 71. And then I went back um, a year after that for another eight months. And I think about like, you know, they're either not with the company uh, or they're gone, you know? And so it's kind of, you know, that, that, that's exciting that, Hopefully they'll invite me to come down there if we get past this whole pandemic thing. Um, you know, hopefully we will. Um, so you know, it's it's pretty amazing where it's gone. I mean, it's not 
it's not what Walt put on the, the plate for Epcot, I think, but um, in many ways, the components of Epcot happened in a looser way. You can live a life you can't find anywhere else down there. And um, the technologies that have come to be out of making it uh, in all the different ways it is are, are kind of living up to the spirit of what Walt set on the plate. I think if I was gonna suggest one thing going forward, I would make Epcot the civic center of Walt Disney World and open it 24 seven and build hotels attached to all of the uh, countries of the world so that you could live a themed experience 24 hours a day. So the living accommodations and the sleeping accommodations and everything would reflect that. And if you, if you were buzzed at three in the morning, you could go out and walk around on the World Showcase. And if they were sweeping the streets or if whatever was going on, I think it would be very romantic. And uh, being there at 5 a.m. opening of the Croissant you know, Cafe in France or being there at two in the morning at the Casbah in Morocco for a, a, a Moroccan coffee or something. I, I just think that would transform it into a city. And I would love to see movement towards that. So you have this hub, the city of Disney World is, is what Walt wanted it to be at Epcot Center. I think that would be the next big goal for me because that is a transformation thing that uh, is sort of still, you want it there. And whatever the future world becomes, uh, I think it could it can morph to be reflective of what audiences are seeking, as long as you uphold that idea of living that life that you can't find anywhere else. Uh, and not going back to just your regular hotel and waiting for it to be nine in the morning the next day. Why not, at least for some people, create a 24 seven place at the center. Sound me up for that so one. So amazing, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, Thank you again for everything. Uh, we, we can't say that enough. It's just been such a delight to get to talk to you today. Well, it's been fun. Um, it's easy to do it this way rather than sending me back there to Illinois on a plane. And, uh, <laughs> you know, though, I will tell you, because you're such a fan of Lincoln, if you ever come to Springfield and want to go to the Presidential Library and Museum, you have three hosts that will be happy to take you around. Very happy. ERC. Um, <laughs> The design firm here in Burbank did the museum. Yes. Mm -hmm. Bob Rogers is in. I am a fan of him. He did the Spirit Lodge that's at Knott's Berry Farm. And uh, his his shows give you goosebumps, you know, so mm -hmm. very patriotic. And uh, yeah, well, please, please come visit. <laughs> we have uh, we have several friends that are of the entire museum, but I don't I've never been, been there. So. Yeah, we have several friends that are uh, a ghost of the library, which is that uh, show. And it is uh, just an incredible and impactful show. So absolutely, you're welcome to Springfield anytime. anytime. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. Can't wait to see you again. D23, maybe. The next yeah, one. Yeah, we have one, you know, eventually. Yeah, in person. I'm like, I see some of the pictures of all the crowds. I'm like going... Well, it'll it'll be different, but you know. Yeah. But thank you for those moments. We're, we're going to have our pageant of the masters down here in Laguna Beach, where uh, that's the first event thing that's been uh, tabbed uh, going to happen this summer. So I'm kind of excited about that. Yeah, we'll get there. Great. Thank you. 
Tony was so gracious with his time. So wonderful to get to speak to and to hear some of those stories of how these attractions came to be that we know and love. Uh, and that touching story with between him and Marty and how uh, they found a way to work together and found a way to understand each other. Um, it, it, it's just incredible because when I think about Disney Imagineering, even when I wasn't a huge Parks fan, you would hear the name Tony Baxter. You would hear the name Marty's Clar. Those were the two names of uh, people that weren't necessarily uh, with the company at the very beginning because you heard things like Claude Coates and you've heard those types of names. But Tony Baxter is such a huge name in Disney Imagineering. Uh, and to be able to get to spend a few moments with him, and, and he's so gracious with his time, to be able to spend that time with him was just absolutely incredible. Brett, your thoughts? Knowing that I was in the audience in one of his favorite moments between he and, uh, and Marty Scalar, I mean, that makes, that is just something that I'm going to hold dear forever. I was, I was there and I was not a part of it. I, I just was a witness to that. And, and it was an amazing moment. And to know that, you know, that that was one of the last times that we were going to see Marty Scalar, you know, um, is just, uh, it even makes it more poignant and more touching and such a wonderful memory. So again, thank you so much for, Tony, for the time that you spent with us and, you know, wish you all the best always. Vanessa, you had spoken about how Indiana Jones is such a favorite attraction of yours. So we got to get some really in-depth discussion about that attraction in this interview. What are your thoughts about uh, the interview overall? I mean, when he, it, it, first of all, it's so cool to to hear this behind the scenes, um, the, these behind the scenes stories and, and what really what happened. And when he's like, yeah, some some parts of the rides, you know, can it can feel more extreme. And I'm thinking, you better believe it, buddy. I can tell you firsthand that some parts of this ride that you created are a little bit bumpy because Vanessa Ferg. She almost went flying out the Jeep, but that's okay <laughs> because it was so much fun. And it's just, was it's cool to hear how it came to be. And, and just in all that he's done, it, it's just, it's great storytelling really to, to hear him talk about his experience. And I have to laugh because I think, um, you know, on this podcast, as, as we've thought about names, we'd like to talk to in the past. And I watch, um, the imaginary story or I, or like you said, Craig, you hear the name Tony Baxter. And I always thought, Oh, let's just talk to him. No biggie. And, and your guys' reactions have kind of been like, oh, we can't just go talk to Tony Baxter. He's a legend. And I was like, well, why not? But you know, he is a big deal. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm taking it all in and so appreciative that he was willing to give us so much time um, for, you know, little old us, you know, so it, it was just a delight. I'm so glad that we were able to, to speak with him today. And, you know, our invitation stands. If he ever comes to Springfield, we are more than happy to meet him and to uh, make sure that he has a great time here in Springfield. But it's just so great. So great. Uh, Brett, I wanted to make sure you, if you have any final thoughts, you would be able to give those. Again, there are no words. I am going to be thinking about this time with Tony for 
I don't know, for the longest time, just loving every minute of it and just in appreciation for all that he's done. And he, and he's, he, he comes to his work as a fan, which was like really evident in our, in our conversation. And I'm like going, so he's, he's a Disney fan and we're a Disney fan and that's what we all have in common. And we're very thankful for everything he's done. And speaking of Disney fans, we know you're Disney fans because you're listening to us. If you haven't heard any of our episodes before, you can go back and subscribe to our podcast and listen to it on any major podcast platform that you'd like. We have some great interviews. We also just have some discussions between the three of us about whether that be classic Disney films or being in the parks. We also have some great crossover episodes with other awesome Disney podcasts. So please go and check that out. You can find us on social media as well and follow along you can find us on facebook beyond the mouse podcast you can also find our facebook group which i absolutely love we have this new group where we're just talking to everybody every day and getting opinions and everything else so you can join beyond the mouse podcast pals and communicate with us that way we're also on uh, instagram beyond the mouse pod and on twitter beyond mouse we are part of the front row network you can find them just by searching the front row network on any social media and you can also find us of course on npr illinois community voices as well what an amazing conversation and what an amazing day thank you so much to tony uh, again for all of your work and dedication and creativity and that uh, figment of your imagination for sure for beyond the mouse i am craig i'm vanessa and i'm brett and we will see you real soon in the front row Okay, guys, now that we know that Tony likes fries, let's totally get him a horseshoe, too, when he's in town. <laughs> and for, for, our, for our friends who live across the United States, it's a meal. It's delicious. We'll get you one, too, if you come visit us. Come on down to Springfield. It's so funny because he goes, he goes oh, do you want to see the, the original Figment model? Yes. yes. <laughs> Let me think about Thank it. Thank you. Yes. Oh, my gosh. So oh, cool. So incredible. Oh, oh wow.